Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today, where we live, we're rebroadcasting a conversation about bees. Spring reminds us that pollinators are critical, not only for the plants in our gardens, but also for our agricultural system. We'll be back with a live episode later this week, focused on the questions surrounding reopening during this pandemic. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard of pollinator gardens, but what about pollinator pathways? The idea is to create a more connected landscape in neighborhoods to help pollinators move freely from one place to the next. Coming up, we learn about this initiative in Connecticut and why it's important. Now, are you involved in a pollinator pathway where you live? Join the conversation. That's later. First, awareness has grown around one particular pollinator, the honeybee. Headlines detailing colony collapse and concerns over pesticide use have led many to want to save the honeybee. What threats do they face? Do you raise honeybees or make a point to only use native plants in your garden? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest uh, into uh, the show or on the show. Adam Allington is a reporter with Bloomberg Environment. He also hosts the Business of Bees podcast. Put that on your listening list. Adam's joining us from NPR Studios in Washington, D.C. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. I also want to let our listeners know, in studio with me is Dr. Kimberly Stoner, who's associate scientist in the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Hi, Kim. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. So I'll start with you, Adam. I mentioned colony collapse. This is something that uh, many of our listeners have probably heard about before. Uh, so is this when, uh, would you say, the general public started to pay attention to the honeybee? And how far back did that awareness uh, first start? I think that's accurate. I think, um, you know, around 2006, 2007 were the fr- when we saw the first reported cases of colony collapse disorder, which is a kind of a somewhat mysterious set of circumstances where bees just sort of in a very short amount of time, you know, a couple of days will sort of vanish from the hive. And this is different than, say, if bees had been exposed to, say, a pesticide where you would sort of see a lot of dead bees around. In this case, with colony collapse, the bees just sort of vanish. And the theory behind that is that the bees contract a disease of some kind and and their natural instinct is when they get sick, they leave. So, and that's what we saw, all these headlines in 2006, 2007, the end of bees, the bee apocalypse. And it really put the issue of pollinator health on the map for the public. When we think about uh, the impact of colony collapse when it was first uh, noticed, uh, it wasn't the the backyard beekeepers that were bringing attention to it. Was it the farmers that really saw the impact? And how widespread are they being used uh, when we think about our, our crops being grown around our country? Yeah, it was really the commercial beekeepers who who rang the bell on this one. They were the ones who saw it. And these are beekeepers who are not your, you know, your backyard beekeeper who may have a couple hives. These are people who raise hundreds and thousands of hives primarily for pollination services. That's where 
you know, you bring bees to the crops and the crop that's most associated with this economy is the California almond industry. So you have beekeepers from all over the country putting hives on semi trucks and bringing them out to California at the end of February, beginning of March to pollinate almonds. And then after that, you know, you've got this big workforce of bees. They got to find work somewhere. So then they start traveling from one crop to another, from almonds to cherries, or well, not cherries and first, but almonds to melons, to other crops, to fruit, and it just keeps going for most of the summer. Mm. So when you uh, talk about the, the commercial use of, of honeybees, uh, is it strange for someone to think of, of, of honeybees as livestock, so to speak? Um, in many in many respects, they really are livestock. You know, they live in structures, man-made structures. We they depend on us in large part for their food. We give them medicine. You know, they um they're a kind of managed livestock, like a, in some ways, like a sheep or a cow. Uh, you mentioned uh, colony collapse uh, uh, first being noticed back in in two thousand six. So, uh, you know, what um, did it take researchers a long time to figure out? You know, this was the cause, and you know, is it something that's still uh, a problem today? Well, colony collapse is, is a uh, descriptor for a certain set of, of circumstances. And scientists haven't really said this is the cause of colony collapse. It's just this blanket term that describes this kind of vanishing scenario. There's a lot of theories about what is causing it. Again, as I said, disease is a big factor. Pesticide exposure is also part of the equation. Uh, Varroa mites, which are these invasive mites from Asia that that attack honeybee hives, are another big theory that they spread disease. And again, so the way we use these commercial beehives is basically trans, you know, transporting them all out to one region of California and putting them right next to each other, which, you know, is the exact way you would want to spread disease if you wanted to do that. So there's a lot of science still taking place, but, you know, they haven't really come up with a solid conclusion about what caused colony collapse disorder. And it is still happening today, although, again, these specific set of symptoms aren't happening as much as they were back then. But however, bees are still dying in very high numbers. I mentioned we have an entomologist in studio here on where we live as we focus in on bees, uh, not just honeybees, but later native bees here in Connecticut. You're hearing Adam Allington, reporter with Bloomberg Environment and host of the Business of Bees podcast. Uh, With me is Dr. Kimberly Stoner, who's an associate scientist in the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, So, Kim, if you could talk a little bit more about colony collapse. Uh, Adam's saying that, you know, there's lots of different um, reasons that uh, bees are dying, but if we could start with colony collapse and what researchers do know about that particular phenomenon. So um, I've actually never seen colony collapse disorder as it's described as a you know a very specific syndrome. Um, we don't really have good records in Connecticut of it happening. Uh, the state apiary inspector is a colleague of mine at the experiment station, and you know and going back you know, to 2006 and 2007, there were a few individuals who reported themselves as having colony collapse disorder, but the state apiary inspector has never seen it. So I've never actually done research on it myself. Um, and um, and over time, as as uh, Adam was saying, the uh, the research has really moved more towards a whole range of uh effects on 
bees and different ways that that colonies can die off that don't necessarily fit exactly into that syndrome. So I would agree with him that it's still really pretty mysterious. There was a period where they thought it was a specific virus, but um, I'm not sure that that's really panned out over the long run. If you're listening and you are a beekeeper, is this something you worry about, whether it's colony collapse or some of the um, other uh, factors, including varroa mites, uh, that we'll learn about a little bit more in just a, a few minutes? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So we're gonna we're starting this conversation talking about honeybees. So maybe you could tell us more, uh, Kim, about um, how they are different from other species of bees, the way that they live, and the fact that they're not even native. Right. So honeybees were brought here by Europeans went pretty much as soon as Europeans got here in this in this country. Um, and they are completely different from uh, all of the native bees. They uh, one of the things is that they never go dormant. They continue to be active, metabolizing, keeping the hive warm actually through the entire winter. So a queen and a whole cohort of of thousands of workers is 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 active in a cluster inside the hive through the whole winter. And that's one of the reasons why they need to have a certain amount of honey in order to make it through the winter because they're essentially burning honey to keep themselves warm. Um, they uh, have that iconic hexagonal uh, honeycomb that we always use in all sorts of images and the other bees don't have that. Um, they uh, reproduce by swarming. So the, they throw off, that's how, how there are more bees, is they throw off a swarm with a queen and a whole cohort of workers. And, um, and the, the hive produces a new queen that typically will stay in the hive with the old queen going with the workers. And they'll hang out in a swarm for a certain amount of time looking for a place to move into. And there's actually really interesting mm -hmm. research that's been done uh, by Tom Seeley at Yale about how they send off scouts. The swarms send off scouts to scout out different places because um, the way they evolved, they were in like hollow trees. And they, they um, will scout out the different spaces, come back to the swarm, communicate through the waggle dance that they do where the, the space is that they've scouted out. And um, the book that he wrote about this is actually called Honeybee Democracy. So they <laughs> decide essentially through sort of consensus of all the different scouts about what is the best, best place to move to. And then they all take off at once, and they go there, and they move in. Um, That's really interesting. Sometimes I hear people uh, concerned, maybe on Facebook, I see a swarm of bees. What do I do? So is that what's happening? They're, trying, they're, they're communicating, trying to figure out a, a new place to live? Right. Okay. And often they'll call the experiment station, and, and we have like an insect inquiry office, and people will call, and they'll say, there's a swarm there. Somebody needs to come and take care of it. And... Um, we, we do have a list of beekeepers who can come and collect swarms, but when the swarm is sort of hanging out looking for a place to go, 
they often will um, not be there for very long. So we have to get somebody out there right away if they're going to collect the swarm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard Alan Allenton uh, mentioning varroa mites. Uh, tell us about uh, this particular uh, parasite and how that's uh, impacting honeybee populations. So, yeah, so the varroa mites came to this country in 1987. And for a while in Connecticut, we had a quarantine in order to try and keep from getting the varroa mites and also tracheal mites, which were a problem at the same time, uh, spreading in the honeybees that we had in this state. Um, That only worked for a certain amount of time. Now we have varroa mites. uh, And um, so they... uh, they feed on the bodies of the bees, on the uh, fat bodies of the bees. Um, that's actually pretty recent research that found that out. And they transmit viruses. So there's like a, a synergistic effect of the varroa mites make the viruses, some of which already existed amongst bees, much worse because they're injecting them with their mouth parts directly into the bees. Um, and the viruses also make the bees more susceptible to the varroa mites. So it's like a, a synergistic effect that really uh, can harm the honeybee colony. And, the, and one of the biggest viruses is called deformed wing virus. And it, as its name implies, messes up the wings of the bees so that a lot of the bees can't fly and become pretty useless uh, to the colony. Um, and so that's... Uh, that's the biggest problem, really, that beekeepers face. Uh, there are um, different materials that they can use in order to try and treat for these mites. But it's tricky to find something that's going to kill the mites in the hive and not affect the bees. Um, so there's a limited range of things that you can use that will do that. And um, and the mites have become resistant to some of those. So uh, so it's it's uh, it's a, it's a big problem. Adam Allington is also with us, reporter with Bloomberg Environment and host of the Business of Bees podcast. So uh, we got an explainer on these varroa mites, Adam. Uh, but you know our listeners, uh, you know many people are uh, wondering more about you know pesticide use and what we know or don't know about how that impacts uh, both honeybees and other uh, pollinators. And I'm curious what you can tell us through uh, your reporting uh, with the, the podcast. Yeah, I mean, in the early days of colony collapse, I think a lot of people pointed the finger at pesticides immediately, you know, that, uh, you know, in the past, over the past 25 years or so, the amount of pesticides in use in agriculture has really risen substantially. And so that kind of became an obvious thing to investigate. Um, As far as pesticide exposure and honeybees are concerned, you know, there are a lot of things beekeepers and farmers can do to limit the exposure to honeybees. For instance, you know, you can not spray pesticides while those hives of honeybees are out in the orchard pollinating your fruit. You know, you can remove the hives and then uh, and then spray so that limits exposure to the honeybees. But you're still exposing all those native and wild bees who are living in that environment. And remember, bees can, you know, fly three, four, five miles sometimes away from their hives. So even if you have, uh, you don't have a hive in your orchard, maybe uh, a couple miles down the road, they do. And so those bees may be foraging on those, um, on those trees that have been sprayed with insecticides or pesticides, and that can have an impact. 
Um, and well, the pesticide company, so this is a very big question, you know, are pesticides killing bees? And the answer is yes. An insecticide will kill an insect. The amount and the degree to which they are driving these higher declines is still a is still somewhat up for debate. Um, you know, the pesticide companies would say, you know, we have we have run these tests and done all this lab work, and and it shows that these pesticides, uh, when used this way, are only active in the environment for so long, or this fungicide doesn't kill bees. And but there's a, also a growing science about sublethal impacts on bees. For instance, if a uh, bee is exposed to a certain chemical, maybe it doesn't die immediately, but its central nervous system is impacted in some way, or the bee's larva is impacted. Maybe they don't live as long, or their navigational system doesn't work right, and they can't find their way back to the hive. And so this is kind of the next frontier of science that's taking place right now is is what what are these sublethal impacts on bees and and you know scientists are still really trying to work that out. When we talk about pesticide use, are these the neonicotinoids that people hear about? Yes, neo neonics for short, as uh, as some researchers call them. These are highly highly toxic insecticides that act on the central nervous system of insects, and um, you know just a tiny amount can can really um, be toxic for you know acres and acres. And so these are these are one of the pesticides that environmental groups really want to limit as much as possible. And, the, and they really blame these higher uh, die-off rates on, on these neonics that were in themselves a replacement for a earlier generation of organophosphate insecticides that are, you know, uh, one name is chlorpyrifos, which is also very toxic and also shown to have some impacts on on mammals and humans. And so these neonics were the replacement for those, that generation of insecticides. And while they're not as toxic to mammals, they are still very, very, you know, very toxic for insects, obviously. Uh, Kim Stoner is also here with us, associate scientist in the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, so uh, tell us more about uh, this concern about pesticide use uh, and the fact that, you know, if you want to target a particular insect that's dealing with a crop, you need uh, bees to help pollinate your crops. And so it's kind of like this hard place that farmers are in. Right. So that's an, an inherent uh, problem is uh, that insecticides are, uh, as you say, you want an insecticide that's going to be effective at killing the target pest, and you don't want it to kill any of the things that you care about. So um, the bees, whether they're honeybees or other kinds of bees or pollinators, or actually even natural enemies of the pests. So, you know, like a classic example is lady beetles that will eat the aphids. And um, that is very hard, practically impossible to achieve. Um, and you also don't want it to have effects on people. So um, so uh, there's uh, a whole, it, the whole system of, of evaluating pesticides is really complicated. Um, and uh, so there are all the, every new pesticide that comes along, there's like the camps of the environment uh, environmentalists. There are the pesticide companies. And most of the data comes from the pesticide companies because they have to do a whole lot of research um, before the EPA has enough information 
to evaluate the pesticide. And then there are the farmers who have particular pests that they want to control. And now we have beekeepers as well who are part of all of that. And so each pesticide that comes along um, needs to sort of thread all of those uh, conflicts. And also there's like the bigger environment out there of the pesticides that have already gone through this, sometimes with lower standards in the past. And is the pesticide, new pesticide, going to be better than the old pesticides that we already have in some respect? So, so it's it's really pretty complicated. Uh, Kim brings up a good point about um, you know evaluating pesticides because we're talking about all of this, uh, Adam. Uh, after uh, some decisions by the USDA on how they were evaluating uh, honeybee populations as well as bringing on a new pesticide to the market. That's right. I mean, in July, you know, EPA announced that they were reversing a previous decision to allow a uh, certain pesticide back onto the market, a pesticide called sulfoxaflor. It's kind of hard to say, but um, it's produced by, used to be made by Dow DuPont, which is now a company called Cortiva. And this pesticide is in that family of neonicotinoids and um, highly toxic to bees. In 2013, EPA, uh, excuse me, in 2013, a federal court actually said, ruled that EPA hadn't done enough testing uh, on toxicity to pollinators before they approved this pesticide for use. So they ordered EPA to take that pesticide off the market. And so what EPA did under the Obama administration is they said, okay, well, we'll approve it for use, but only on crops that are not uh, attractive to bees. And so then... Um, Earlier in July, the current administration just reversed that entirely and opened it up to all crops, basically everything from strawberries to cotton to sorghum and corn. And so that really uh, got a lot of environmental groups very upset, you know, saying that here we're in the midst of a quote unquote pollinator crisis and and EPA is is allowing this very toxic pesticide back under the market. Mm. Kim, what do you know about sofloxaflor? So um, it uh, is less toxic than some of the other neonicotinoids. So it's about um, a, a tenth as toxic as um, imidacloprid and thiamethoxam and some of the other neonicotinoids, which are also very controversial. Um, and uh, it seems, too, that it uh, the the EPA has done uh, what are called tier two tests, where they look at the effects um, not just on individual honeybees, but actually on honeybee colonies. And this this pesticide passed those tests. But people have also done research on bumblebees, where they've looked at the effect on bumblebees, and in pretty realistic way. This was some research that was just done in Britain, where they exposed the bumblebee colonies to sulfoxaflor at what they figured was pretty realistic rate for just two weeks. And then they put the bumblebees out, the colonies out into clean environments, and they tracked the um, survival and the reproduction of the colonies. And they found an effect from just that two-week exposure um, on the ability of the bumblebee colonies to produce new reproductives. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I think that that uh, is a general situation for many of these pesticides is that we focus very intensely on honeybees. And honeybees, I actually wrote a paper about this, and honeybees compared to bumblebees, that honeybees seem to be pretty buffered against pesticides because they have tens of thousands of workers. Uh, the queen only leaves to go off on a mating flight or leaves with a swarm. So she um, is has very, very little exposure to the environment. Um, and the colony can afford to lose some of their tens of thousands of workers if they're exposed to pesticides. Whereas bumblebees have an annual life cycle where it's only the queen, the mated queen, who overwinters instead of a whole colony like honeybees. And then she has to go out and do everything. She has to go out, do foraging for herself, um, find a place to establish a nest, uh, produce wax for the nest, feed the larvae, produce the, the pollen and nectar to feed the larvae, and um, do all of that, and then she incubates the larvae. So she has to consume a whole lot of nectar in order to burn that nectar as fuel so that she can heat up the larvae so they can develop faster. And then after that, she becomes more like a, a honeybee queen and is in the nest laying eggs. So there's way more opportunity for exposure of bumblebee queens to these pesticides than than honeybee queens. And um, there's much more evidence of effects on bumblebee colonies at much lower levels of sulfoxiflor and also many of the neonicotinoids than for honeybees. Uh, Adam Allenton, before we head to break, uh, you know, what has been the response since uh, the federal program to track honeybee loss has been suspended by the USDA? You know, what is uh, the impact on, on beekeepers and other farmers who are concerned about, you know, not being able to understand, you know, what is impacting uh, their populations, whether it's a combination of, of varroa mites, uh, pesticide use, uh, and, and other factors? Yeah, as as you mentioned earlier in in July, the USDA announced that they were suspending this uh, annual uh, honeybee loss survey. Uh, that was a legacy of an, an Obama administration initiative, a pollinator health initiative. And you know, as researchers and scientists, both in in the federal government and at universities and so forth, are trying to sort out some of these questions that we're talking about. You know, basic survey data on uh, on bee die-off rates and, and hive loss rates is sort of a fundamental part of trying to answer those questions. So I think a lot of people were were upset that that, um, that survey data wouldn't be there going forward. You know, it had only been around a couple years, but, you know, you need to have that if you're going to try to analyze what impact various policy changes are having. Adam Allington is a reporter with Bloomberg Environment, host of the Business of Bees podcast, joining us today from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kimberly Stoner with me, associate scientist in the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live. After the break, honeybees get all the attention. But there are plenty of pollinators, including native bees in Connecticut, that need your help. That's coming up. And we want to hear your bee questions, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you concerned about pollinators? Do you raise honeybees in your backyard or on your farm? We want to hear from you today as we learn more about bees. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guests uh, in studio, Dr. Kimberly Stoner, Associate Scientist in the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Also with us from Washington, D.C., Adam Allington, reporter with Bloomberg Environment and host of the Business of Bees podcast. Uh, Matt's calling from West Hartford. Matt, go ahead. Uh, yes, I'm an avid gardener here in West Hartford, and I feel that I've been battling the squash bug uh, pretty extensively for the last three or four years. And I am concerned. I use neem oil uh, to kind of keep them at bay. I also remove the bugs and the eggs when I see them. Uh, but I do really care about whether or not the bees are coming along. I'm getting fruit, so obviously, um, you know, they're pollinating, uh, or some pollinators are pollinating the plants. Uh, but I am I am concerned. And I want to also say that I have a mason bee house up in the backyard, uh, which is uh, pretty active, uh, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, thanks. Well, Matt, uh, thank you for your call. Uh, so the impact of, of neem oil, this is often seen as an organic way to treat for pests, but you have to be careful about when you spray it, Kim? Well, yeah, so um, you don't want to m- have it make direct contact with the the honeybees or, or other pollinators. Actually, uh, bumblebees and squash bees are, are pretty major pollinators of squash. Um, but it's... Uh, it's not persistent in the environment. It's not going to spread from where you apply it to the squash bugs into the flowers where the bees are going to be. So that's it's a it's a it sounds like he's doing a great job. He also recognizes the eggs and removes them when he sees it. So it sounds like he's doing a good job. Squash bugs are the worst. So the squash beetles, uh, having dealt with that myself, did you mention there's a squash bee? Yes, there is. There is a bee that feeds its larvae only the pollen from the genus Cucurbita, which is like pumpkins and squash. Um, It is a ground-nesting solitary bee. So each female makes her own nest. So again, a completely different life cycle from honeybees. And uh, so uh, I, for a long time, it was called Pepinapus pruinosa. Now I think it's been moved into a different genus. Uh, so it's now Eucera pruinosa, um, a very cute bee. <laughs> um, and uh, does it look like a bumblebee or completely different? It's it's, um, it's about the same size as a honeybee, uh, uh, but it has a it has a face that looks kind of like a parrot. It's got a projection on the front of its face, and the females have what look like chaps on their hind legs, which is where they collect the pollen. Uh, I think uh, that he also mentioned that he had a mason bee house uh, in his yard. It's doing pretty well. Uh, so uh, obviously some people uh, will plant different uh, you know, flowers in their yard to help pollinators, including different types of bees. But then you also see people designing and making these little houses for things like mason bees. Can that be problematic, though, in terms of how uh, bacteria is passed? I mean, is is that a good approach to help them? So what I say to people um, is that uh, mason bee houses are sort of like bird feeders or bird baths. So what they do is they bring the bees to where you can see them. And they're very cool bees, so people want to see them. but they have to be maintained or else they can be a site of spreading 
uh, different pathogens and parasites, and also they can be a target for woodpeckers who are interested in eating the mason bee larvae. So um, it's important to um, read up on how to maintain them properly so that uh, so that you're not spreading diseases because the mason bees don't normally nest close together in a house like that. They are finding like little individual um, hollow spaces. They nest in tunnels, um, so like tunnels that other uh, animals would make in wood or hollow stems. And so they wouldn't normally be packed together as they would be in a mason bee house. So you just have to be careful and maintain things well. So we've mentioned a, a few different types of bees. How many uh, species of bees have been found in Connecticut? So we have um, 349 different species. Um, and uh, we're working on a checklist. Uh, I have a, a great technician, Tracy Zarillo, who can identify all of those 349 species. And uh, she's also working with other scientists around the world to figure out like where we need to go in order to see if we can find some other bees that might be in the state that we haven't collected yet. Um, we have uh, one species of honeybee, of course, the exotic honeybee that we've brought in. We historically had 16 species of bumblebees. We've lost some of those species of bumblebees um, in the last 20 years. We have 91 species of sweat bees. Um, so there are lots and lots of different kinds of sweat bees, um, which are cute little bees. Some of them are sort of iridescent green um, and that are important pollinators. They, um, some of them are social and they can be around in large numbers and they are pollinators of things like tomatoes and peppers um, and some of the melons. Um, and then we have lots of these solitary bees, many of them ground-nesting solitary bees. So we have like 84 species of digger bees and 20 species of mason bees. So lots and lots of bee diversity, even in our little state. And how are bees different from other uh, flying insects? You know, the ones that uh, many people don't like to see around their home are wasps. And I'm just curious if you could talk about, you know, they're also pollinators. Yeah, so um, bees um, bees use pollen as their source of protein. That's one of the things that distinguishes them from wasps. Um, so wasps typically use uh, other other insects um, as their source of protein. So uh, that's part of what makes bees really good pollinators is that they have a whole set of hairs that um, collect pollen and. Um, so they're, they're very good at moving pollen around. Um, so there are both solitary and social bees, and there are solitary and social wasps as well. Um, so there are a lot of wasps that, for example, um, I have a colleague who works on a wasp that goes and collects the emerald ash borer beetles out of trees and that paralyzes them and feeds them to their larvae. So they make a nest in the ground and they bring these insects back and feed them to their larvae. Um, so uh, there are wasps that are, that are good pollinators as well. Um, there's a whole range of other kinds of pollinators besides bees. Flies, there are actually a lot of flies that are important pollinators too, and beetles and 
practically all groups of insects have some pollinators in them. And then, of course, there are hummingbirds and other kinds of birds as well. Uh, when we talk about different types of native bees, earlier uh, you mentioned how bumblebees um, can be more susceptible or showing to be more susceptible to pesticides. Um, so I'm curious, uh, with native other native bees that you've mentioned, are they um, in danger as well in our state? Do we know? So um, it's hard to get good baseline data. We actually have cert- a, a long-term bee monitoring program where we have Um, different sites around the state where we sample in the same way. We have like a whole series of traps, essentially colored colored bowls that the bees go in um, around the state. And we've been doing that for 10 years. So we need to like collect data for a long time in a systematic way in order to be able to see if the other bees are um, declining over time. So that's one way to go at it. There are also people who study the collections in museums. So people have been collecting bees um, for well over 100 years in Connecticut. And we can look back at those collections. But it's tricky to analyze because people tend to collect the bees that are more rare. So um, to try and get some sort of quantitative aspect of what was the abundance of the bees in the past compared to the abundance now is really tricky. Mm. Uh, with us uh, also on the show today here on Where We Live is Adam Allington, a reporter with Bloomberg Environment, host of the Business of Bees podcast. Adam, well, we were talking about native bees, and I'm wondering with uh, changes in agriculture, you know, are they also being impacted um, and seeing population loss um, beyond the honeybee? Oh, I think uh, for sure, uh, especially as agriculture keeps expanding. Uh, that's one thing. And then the way agriculture is practiced now is, is quite different than it was uh, in generations past. For instance, the fields uh, you see today will often go from one road all the way to another uh, where they used to have a uh, like a fence line or a small, you know, ditch or, you know, weedy area around the edge of the field where bees and pollinators native bees could live in that space now it's it's you know completely under cultivation and um you know other practices for instance farmers uh it's you know don't use cover crops as much anymore you know when you're done with harvest at the end of the year you'll plant a cover crop like an alfalfa to replenish the soil and and keep that field uh stabilized until the till next spring uh bees could could uh, live in that, uh, you know, they could get food from that alfalfa. Well, mostly now farmers will just use uh, fertilizer to do that job. So you see more pressure on the native bees that way and also just greater exposure, as we've talked about, to to pesticides. Uh, I mentioned your podcast, The Business of Bees, uh, one episode uh, asking that question if uh, are we giving or doing a disservice to native bees when we rally around save the honeybee? Um, Just quickly, uh, you know, when we think about the importance of of native bees, is it easier for people to rally around the honeybee because it makes something that many of us enjoy, which is honey? Well, I think there's um, there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, the analogy that gets tossed around quite often is that, you know, uh, raising honeybees to help pollinators is kind of like raising chickens to, to help birds or something like that. You know, um, I love, I you know, I love honey. I, you know, I'm a big fan of backyard beekeeping. But, you, you know, you should be clear that, you know, if you are going to, to raise backyard bees, 
Uh, that's all fine and dandy, but it's not going to sort of help pollinators and is definitely not going to help native bees. Um, the good news is that, you know, unlike things like, you know, big sprawling environmental problems like, say, climate change that can be a bit hard to see the benefit of individual action, there are things you can do, uh, even on a small city uh plot to to help bees. You can plant more native flowers. You can maybe let your lawn go a bit wild, let those dandelions stay in your yard in the springtime, and that will really help native bees. In fact, in some, there's been research that now suggests that cities are actually becoming pollinator refuges to the uh, agricultural uh, sprawl, if you will, in the rural areas that bees are finding all this habitat in in cities as, um, you know, as cities adapt to become more pollinator friendly. Adam Allington, again, reporter with Bloomberg Environment, joining us from NPR studios today. Uh, We thank you for joining us, Adam. Thank you so much. Uh, This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear about ways to help other pollinators, including monarch butterflies. And have you heard about pollinator pathway? We're going to explain right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Honeybees aren't the only pollinators that need your help. As we heard from my guest, Dr. Kimberly Stoner with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, we can't forget about the bumblebees, dare I mention the wasps, the flies, and of course, moths and butterflies. Joining us now to talk more about ways to help the monarch butterfly is Nancy Brule Clementi, owner of NatureWorks Garden Center in Northford, Connecticut. Uh, Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be talking to you about monarchs. So tell us about um, what's being done to help the monarch when they're when we see them in Connecticut. Um, I'm curious about just the the path they take from Mexico to here. Well, they they are in Mexico for the winter. They leave the sanctuary in Mexico and fly to the Midwest, and they look for milkweed, which is the Asclepius, which is the genus of the plant that they lay their eggs on, the only plant they can lay their eggs on. If they find it in the Midwest, their first stop, the females lay their eggs, the females die. If the eggs survive and two out of a hundred make it to a butterfly, whoever survives flies a little closer to Connecticut. They look for milkweed and Asclepius. They lay their eggs. The females die. That generation flies even further north. So by the time they get to Connecticut, which is around June, they've already, this is the third generation out of Mexico, the third or fourth generation out of Mexico right now. So I'm looking out the window of my home office and there's a monarch flying around. This is a monarch that was probably born in the last few weeks. It's a mating monarch. This is the generation that mates. And they're going to mate all the way through August. And then the final generation that's born in September is called the super generation. And they don't mate and they fly back to Mexico. So there's multiple generations. A lot of people think that they just... The same butterfly just keeps flying around all the time, but that's not the case at all. <laughs> that's really fascinating. Uh, you're down by the shore, so are people more likely to see monarchs down there or throughout our whole state? No, you can see them throughout the whole state. My home is in Middletown. I see tons of monarchs here. It has to do with what your yard is like. It, first of all, you can't use pesticides to attract monarchs. They are so sensitive. Mm-hmm. 
at our garden center, we raise monarchs. Last year, we raised over a thousand. We collect the eggs and the caterpillars from the milkweed and other forms of Asclepias in our organic gardens. If there's even a trace of any pesticide on them, they will go into convulsions and die. And so they are super, super sensitive to all chemicals. Then you have to have their larval food plant, Asclepias or butterfly weed or some form of milkweed, and then you have to have tons and tons of nectar flowers, which is also good for the pollinators, as Kim will say, you know, the pollinators and the monarch butterflies, the bees and the monarch butterflies all basically are looking for, for nectar, and, and if you have a lot of flowers, it's like a giant billboard to them go, here, here it is, come in, you know. You mentioned milkweed uh, being the only plant that they will actually uh, lay their eggs on. So is this something that you'll, you're seeing demand for? People want milkweed even though, you know, it gets a bad rap sometimes? Absolutely. I never, I've been in business 36 years. I've been organic for 36 years. Never in a million years did I ever think I'd be selling milkweed. But now I do sell milkweed and a lot of it. But we also teach people that they can also use other forms of the genus Asclepius that are much less invasive. And we try and match people to the proper Asclepius that's right for their home environment. You know, you can have a deck in the city and grow tropical Asclepius and have beautiful flowers all summer, provide level food plants for the monarchs, and provide nectar for, the, for all butterflies and pollinators. So it's easy, easy to do if you just get the information right. Uh, Kimberly Stoner is with us from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, I like that uh, Nancy mentioned that as long as you have uh, the right kind of plants, no matter if you live in the country or the city, uh, that you can attract pollinators. Tell us more about this initiative in Connecticut. I, I know it, it's happening in other states, this pollinator pathways to help pollinators as they move along. So the pollinator pathway uh, initiative is to connect together the natural areas that people have in their town. It's very town, grassroots-based. Um, and to connect them with native plants, uh, a mix of trees and shrubs and uh, herbaceous perennials, all native, and to reduce as much as possible or eliminate the use of insecticides and other pesticides. And... Um, it's been tremendously popular. There are 20 different towns in Connecticut that are on their website. And we get, I get inquiries, the other people who are organizing it get inquiries all the time from all kinds of other towns across the state. So um, I think we're probably going to have some kind of meeting of all these people to share. They've done a great job of sort of branding the whole idea of pollinator pathways. And making like a little toolkit of what you can do in your town in order to get this whole initiative started. So I'll make sure that uh, we link to uh, the website for to, so people can learn more about um, how to start pollinator pathways in, in their town. And before we go, uh, Dr. Kimberly Stoner with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, uh, we really appreciate you joining us today on Where We Live. Also, Nancy DeBrule Clementi, owner of NatureWorks Garden Center in Northford, Connecticut. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer was Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.